three years into the journey, three years into this great experiment called Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, we have finally reached episode 100. And for me, your host, Mike Wong, there is only one logical way to celebrate this milestone by reuniting with the crew from the very first episode of Strange New Worlds, geobiologist Elise Cutts and planetary scientist Peter Gao. Welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. So uh, my name is Peter Gao. I'm currently a researcher at NASA Ames Research Center uh, studying planetary science mostly focused on chemistry and clouds and hazes in planetary atmospheres. <laughs> oh my god, we were so young back then. Oh, that's great, Peter. Uh, when did you start watching Star Trek, though? This is the real question, right? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> More important. Uh, so it was way back in the heydays of the 90s. You know, when I listen back to that very first episode, I cringe a little <laughs> at how, I don't know, amateur we sound. So, convince me. Who's your favorite captain? No, convince and me. Then we... I'll let you know, uh, but I could... This and isn't I guess, fair. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Tell me why Captain Janeway beats all the other captains in Star Trek. Janeway's the only scientist. Look, I'm not saying that we've done the equivalent of going from season one to peak TNG, but I do think that this show has grown in measurable ways, despite the fact that 100 episodes in, I still have no idea what I'm doing. This show, this whole endeavor, is fueled by nothing more and nothing less than generous donations of spare time. It only exists because countless people have agreed to lend me their voices, their thoughts, and their expertise, and because people all around the world continue to tune in and listen. And I am forever grateful to all of you. Now, when Elise, Peter, and I gathered around a microphone for the very first time, it was to discuss the trailer for this brand new Star Trek series called Star Trek Discovery. Uh, I think his name is Lieutenant Saru, uh, the science officer saying, my species has been biologically determined to sense the coming of death. Yeah, I don't know how he's Well, today, we're going to do that, but threefold, and chat about the upcoming shows Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Star Trek Lower Decks, and Star Trek Prodigy, all of which are racing toward us at warp speed, with Lower Decks premiering just days after the release of this podcast episode. And I am super excited as a Star Trek fan, and just so glad that I am able to share the anticipatory hype with Peter and Elise via subspace communications. Now, a quick note before we hop onto that frequency. The Q&A with your audience questions that I promised to answer on episode 100 is actually going to be released as episode 101. The reason is basically that I received so many thoughtful questions, and I want to make sure that this discussion with Elise and Peter comes out before Lower Decks premieres on August 6th. So if you're looking for that Q&A, please just jump to episode 101, which should drop in a few days. All right. Computer, engage. 
Elise Cutts, Peter Gao, welcome hey. to episode 100 of Strange New Worlds. And to the two. <laughs> yeah. Before we get started, I just want to uh, make sure we acknowledge what amazing human beings you both are. Our listeners, you know, they think about you and they even ask about both of you. And I think they deserve to know about your amazing accomplishments in the past few months that uh, they haven't heard about because uh, you haven't been on in, in a while. So Elise, you got into grad school with a fancy fellowship. Uh, <laughs> yeah, clap, clap, clap over Zoom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> would you like to share with us where you're going and what you're gonna do? Um, yeah, so I'm headed off to MIT at the end of the summer to start working on a geobiology PhD with Tanya Bosak, so you can look her up and stalk her. <laughs> no, she's really cool. Um, go check out her awesome research. And yeah, that's what I'm doing. With so. an NSF fellowship. So the National Science yeah. Foundation is paying your way there. Yeah, very yeah, nice. for three years. <laughs> Excellent. And Peter, you just landed a shiny new job. Will you tell us about your next adventure? Uh, sure, I can tell you a little bit of it because the, the deal is now finalized, but it is a permanent position. Uh, it is uh, still doing research in the field that I love, planetary and exoplanet science, uh, and it's somewhere on the East Coast. That's all I can say at this point, but hopefully later uh, I can say more. Yeah, well, at least you two will be on the same coast. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it would give me more yeah. incentive to uh, fly out there once the whole pandemic is over. Um, so we are here to discuss the wonderful news in the Star Trek community. We have so many different Star Trek shows in development. There has never been a point in history where so many different Star Trek projects have been active. So let's begin with a show that is beautifully titled Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And my yeah, first question title. <laughs> My first question to you two is if I had to change the name of this podcast, what should I change it to? <laughs> Thinking faces. Well, there was that time that I accidentally called it Boldly Go, uh, confusing <laughs> this with your other Star Trek thing, which was the, the enormous play. Space Trek Unusual New Planets. <laughs> <laughs> unusual Novel Planets. Unusual yeah. Novel Planets. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully, <laughs> I, I, hopefully know, I don't need to change. Yeah. It, it, I'm guessing I won't change. Um, I think at this point, you could probably say Star Trek and Science with Mike. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Everyone knows who yeah. you are now. So. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah. You've got a actually, presence. I like that. Yeah. Okay, so this series, Strange New Worlds, is the heavily asked for Star Trek Captain Pike series. Uh, and it's a spin-off of Star Trek Discovery featuring the USS Enterprise and her crew to whom we were introduced in the second season of Star Trek Discovery. And now the announcement video was this 60 seconds of Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, and Rebecca Romaine, each very clearly socially distanced, breaking the news of the new Star Trek to the Star Trek fandom. Uh, what did you make of that kind of announcement rather than something a little more polished like we've seen before? I think it gives it a lot more personal tone to it. I guess one thing to, to think about is this is probably the first Star Trek series where the studio essentially 
agreed with the fans and gave them what they want, right? In the, I mean, I don't know the history of how Voyager Enterprise Yes Now came about, but certainly after season two of Discovery, people were clamoring for a Pike series and they got it. I think this is, I mean, as far as I know, this is the first time this has happened. So having the, the stars reaching out to the fans in this fashion was really nice. I think that talking about the fans is a pretty good observation because this is clearly not an announcement that's targeted at everyone. You know, if you're not already in the boat of Star Trek, you know, paddling along, you're not going to see this or care. So it's really for the people who are already invested to get them hyped. So I think they've kind of figured out that the way that they, you know, make money and keep this going and be able to continue making their, their content and having a good series and good story is to you know, recognize that it really is the diehards who, you know, it's 20% of the fans that keep 80% of it going. So it seemed like sort of a recognition of that and of the kind of super odd moment that we're in with the socially distanced everything. So that was sort of how it came across to me as both very targeted at people who are already watching the show and kind of leaning into the strangeness of the moment. And also it gives them a lot of flexibility to decide what the values of the show are going to be because they didn't tease anything other than that it's optimistic so they have a lot of wiggle room to sort of see how things develop and if some idea becomes a complete black flag but they can't fly it's very easy to take it down if COVID develops some way or the protests go a certain way you know they have a lot of wiggle room based on that very vague announcement so that was another sort of third thing that I noticed about it yeah I completely agree with uh, your comments both of you uh, it's definitely a recognition of this moment, you know, uh, their video quality was obviously just like a Zoom video. Uh, and so they were saying like, yeah, we're in this too. But also being able to get that announcement from the actors in their homes uh, brought a little bit of of light and joy with the promise of this new Star Trek series. Like you both said, thanking the fans for what they've done for the actors as people and uh, simply exuding our enthusiasm as as fans accomplished this great thing giving us some sort of glimmer of hope that actually sitting at home on our couches watching and tweeting about star trek can make a difference in the world <laughs> which is kind of fun i so, like the the comment from the pike uh actor i forget his name i just think of him as pike at this point so it's <laughs> gone but he when he said it would be a kind of classic star trek series because that's something that we had been sort of missing from this whole new age of Star Trek, like Picard was not a classic Star Trek series. It had some classic moments. Discovery was not a classic Star Trek series, had its classic moments, but now it seems like they're taking a classic idea, Pike and his crew, and going to lean into that. And especially if they're making so much new Trek, it really makes sense to have something that's the bread and butter going. So that was that was cool to me. And it's a good time for it, for sure. What a perfect segue into my next question, which is that the producers... Um, Alex Kurtzman et al. have acknowledged that this particular show will feature more episodic stories like the original series or The Next Generation rather than the long serialized story arcs that we've been accustomed to now with Discovery and Picard. So I'm wondering about what you think about the return to this particular mode of storytelling. I'm all for it. I think there's so much almost like a cult of prestige television these days where everything's supposed to be a bingeable Netflix, you know, mega story told over 12 episodes or it's a movie. Like it almost doesn't feel like TV anymore. It sort of feels like you choose an extended movie to watch and you can tell a different kind of story and hit a lot of different messages by using an episodic format and 
for a classic Star Trek series that wants to be optimistic and talk about themes in the future, the more themes you can hit with that sort of optimism hammer, the better. So a series that doesn't tie you to just one idea, I think is there should be a place for that in the world. And maybe it will do well on television because people can just pop in, but I don't know anything about TV business. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that there, I mean, there's just so many different ways to tell a story and it's nice to see them playing around and trying to breathe some life into that sort of classic format again. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. I think it's definitely going to be a departure from sort of the, the typical uh, event television these days. I mean, I will also say that does carry a little bit of risk since people these days are used to uh, having essentially a cliffhanger end, ending every week. Uh, and I do wonder how easy it would be to keep an audience with an episodic TV. I mean, in that case, you, each story would have to be really, really good. Uh, obviously, you can't have every episode being absolutely fantastic, but if you have a, a story arc or a seasonal arc, you can sort of have much bigger stories, much bigger threats, and much bigger themes carry over. Now, of course, if that whole thing, if the whole story is bad, then you just have a whole season of bad stories. So it really is a give and take. But like Elise said, what I'm really looking forward to is the variety of, of themes and variety of ideas they'll be able to, to explore. Uh, one of the hopes I had with Discovery was that they would take advantage of the new scientific discoveries we found for exoplanets, for example. Uh, and that's understandably hard to do when you have a season-long story and your story and your characters take absolute, I mean, and how they develop take absolute front stage, whereas hitting sort of interesting scientific scenarios takes a backstage. Uh, that's something the Strange New World, I mean, it's in the title, uh, can actually explore. Maybe one day they'll explore a tightly locked world, another day they'll explore some other astrophysical phenomenon, and of course, attach themes and character developments to that. It'll be an interesting and different kind of storytelling. Well, you two are obviously such veterans of this podcast. It's almost like you're forecasting exactly what my next question said. Elise just did it, and Peter, you just did it right here. Um, <laughs> my next question is literally, the show is called Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and if you could pick one kind of strange new world that we have not yet seen on Star Trek for Pike and his crew to explore in one of these episodic episodes. What kind of strange new world do you want them to go find? Thinking. <laughs> thinking, thinking. Working, working. <laughs> I think it's a bit tough because I haven't watched every Star Trek episode or remember all of them. So maybe I'll say something that they've already done, but I like the idea of them going to a rogue planet that still has water underneath the surface or has a thick enough atmosphere that it can have liquid water at the surface and finding intelligent life that was incapable of understanding the universe exists because they were under an ice sheet wandering around on a lonely planet with no way to understand that there is anything else in the world except for their ocean because I just find that idea in the Star Trek universe, which is so open, and everyone sort of ends up finding out that there's a universe, a species that like, their whole worldview would be more violated by, like they, they're intelligent, they're ready for warp, but you can't prime directive them still because it would be so disruptive. I think that would be a fun prime directive challenge of a species that didn't even know stars existed. Where do you say you came from? Fantastic. Yes. I don't yeah. think we have seen a uh, intelligent civilization that is completely ice covered, like in the scenario you described. Star Trek has done rogue planets in the past. 
but yeah, sort of unscientifically, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, like the rogue planet had an oxygen nitrogen atmosphere that was somehow stable out in space. Yeah, <laughs> with and also this. also green plants and green plants. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but um, yeah, it would be really fun to do either an ice-covered uh, rogue planet like you were talking about, or one of these wacky planets that Professor Dave Stevenson at Caltech uh, hypothesized about with a very thick primordial hydrogen atmosphere um, that created a, a very high pressure at the surface of the planet, but allowed for the slow eking of geothermal heat from the planet's interior to maintain suitable temperatures for life as we know it and liquid water to persist on the surface. So um, yeah, something like that or your ice-covered worlds would be fantastic. So I think they had the chance to uh, really deal with scientific concepts that uh, they couldn't have dreamed of uh, way back in the 90s and the early 2000s. I've always thought of this idea where um, they crash land on a planet, but the planet has an orbital period of three hours. So there are these ultra short period exoplanets that uh, the Kepler spacecraft found that orbit their stars within a couple of hours. And these are rocky, probably lava worlds uh, since they're so hot. And I mean, three hours, that's basically within the time frame of an episode. Uh, give or take. So I can imagine sort of a, a, a self-contained episode of just crash landing and rescue. We've seen plenty of those in Star Trek, but uh, with a very unique background of, say, uh, a world that over their star very quickly, maybe have some kind of uh, volcanic uh, eruptions happening that happens every given time during the orbital period and stuff like that. So these natu essentially natural disasters with a bit of nature that we haven't seen before. I think that'd be, that'd be pretty fun. Yeah, leaning into the oddness of space nature would be cool to see because often it's just sort of earth and space or like pictures of planets with gas and stuff. It's, but there's so much weird thing, so much, so much weird things. <laughs> so many weird, th so, yeah, so many weird things that they could really lean into. The strangeness, the strange new worlds. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, let's lean into another Star Trek series in development, one that is actually about to come out uh, in a few weeks from the time that we're recording this episode. Star Trek Lower Decks. This is a new animated comedy which will premiere on CBS All Access on August 6th. And now, according to this show's showrunner, Mike McMahon, Star Trek Lower Decks will take place in the year 2380. So that's right after the last TNG movie, Star Trek Nemesis, very close to when Voyager uh, returned home, so a few years after that, and a long time before Star Trek Picard. Um, so it's more in that sort of TNG, Voyager, Deep Space Nine era. Uh, and it's supposed to follow the junior officers of the USS Cerritos, and McMahon promises that this show will be exciting, funny, but still contain the ethical core of Star Trek. Now, animation and comedy are two storytelling vehicles that have not really been heavily used in Star Trek before. So what do you think that animation and or comedy adds to the breadth of the Star Trek universe? So I guess I'll start with comedy because I think it's less straightforward, but more fun. I think that comedy sort of, we remember when we were talking about Picard coming out and we were like, we really want a show that's just Picard being a professor and, you know, hanging out and solving small mysteries at his space university. 
um, or just, you know, seeing sort of regular life in the Star Trek universe. Um, comedy will not give us Picard correcting people's homework sets, but it will give <laughs> us a look at some of the sort of less glorious, less lofty aspects of the of the Star Trek universe without like feeling preachy about the bad things in life. I think comedy will I be a very light. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to pause right there and just say, would Picard correcting people's homework sets be a comedy in itself? Like, I feel like that would be super <laughs> funny. Like Jean-Luc, <laughs> no, this is wrong. This is not how the Borg operate. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he could have a TA do it, but he wouldn't. You know he wouldn't. It'd be some, against some code of honor or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry to interrupt anyway. Uh, no, 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 no worries. But yeah, I think comedy gives you sort of a very lighthearted vehicle with which to discuss some of the less savory aspects of Starfleet without feeling like you're really digging a knife into it. Like you're, it gives you permission to point out some of the plot holes on a meta level and the culture holes or the real underlying problems that nobody's figured out how to work their way around in the Star Trek universe or the sort of grosser parts and the things that people sort of wonder about like, hey, isn't there a problem here? Like, isn't this unfair for somebody? How does this work? Um, comedy is very safe way to do this um, without it being too dark and sad and just wallowing in, in grayness. Just watching the trailer, it looks like they're literally dealing with some of the sort of crud of Starfleet. Um, so I think that that's something that comedy really gives you permission to do is deal with tough topics, but not really have to make yourself sad doing it. I think the separation of comedy and what constitutes uh, quote unquote, you know, regular Star Trek I mean, I think that in itself is an interesting thing to think about because it seems to say that uh, in the future where everything, uh, there are no more issues or optimism reigns, comedy is no longer, or I guess being funny is no longer a, a normal trait or something, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, one has to think about, you know, what kind of people going to Starfleet, are they the absolute best of the best of the best, or are they sort of just regular folks who decided that that is their job versus being on earth doing something else? And regular folks are funny. People can be funny. So why aren't Starfleet officers also be funny? Why can't they be uh, picking out these idiosyncrasies in their lives? Like, why, why is this, you know, why don't we have seatbelts? It seems we should have seatbelts, right? Stuff like that. Like, why, why aren't they picking that up and, and laughing at it? But another, another thing is that comedy is usually one of the best ways to deal with controversial subjects pointing out the ridiculousness of a situation or a society or a set of rules sometimes makes it more obvious that that should not stand. So I think, you know, I mean, this is, I guess, getting a little deep here, but <laughs> I think uh, having, uh, uh, having a marriage of comedy and the themes of Star Trek is, it should be pretty interesting. It'll, it'll be up to them how they deal with it though, right? Um, I just wa actually just watched a little bit of Rick and Morty, which is the previous show that Mike McMahon was on. And Rick and Morty is very much not Star Trek as we know it. But the thing I love about Rick and Morty is that they really go into really, really hard sci-fi concepts and also uh, drunkenness. But like there's lots, of, <laughs> there's lots of like random little details here and there. But they, they, they have some, some of the best sci-fi writing, sci-fi stories I've ever seen. Uh, and so if that can happen with Star Trek Lower Decks, I will be thrilled. So I think animation is just sort of like the freedom to dream completely off the wall stuff if you can imagine it and you can draw it it can exist in the universe now you don't have to have a crazy cgi budget to make it exist so i think you might have some stories being told that 
you might just have had truncated or delayed or turned into a really big deal um, because of the the budget constraints. Whereas with animation, you can have more aliens. I'm pretty sure, or I guess I would really like to see or would suspect that they're going to answer the non-human alien in Star Trek question a little bit more now that they don't have to put people in costumes or do <laughs> CGI that looks real. Like you could have a bubbling ball of spaghetti and like forks walk onto the ship and move around, you know, that could be an alien. They could do it. It's not outside of their reach. So I'm hoping to, I guess, see more. I hope they lean into it because you could do some really absurd things with animation. And to go back to Peter's point about the, the terrain, like you could draw all of that weird space terrain that, I mean, scientists hire artists to render because it's difficult to imagine. So I, I hope they lean into it and use it as permission to just dream up some crazy things to stick into the Star Trek universe that might otherwise not make the cut. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no need to go to Vasquez Rocks all the time anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's now Rafi's home, which is just yeah. brilliant. <laughs> Finally got to uh, portray itself instead of another alien <laughs> world uh, in Star Trek. About time. So another thing that I'm looking forward to about this show, besides its novel comedy aspect and the fact that it's animated, is that it seems to be about early career Starfleet personnel. And the grad early, students. <laughs> the grad students of, Star, of Starfleet ships. As, as an early career scientist myself, you know, wading through the murky waters of academia, trying to find my way, I think that it would be really enjoyable to watch a bunch of cool, scrappy underdogs who might not be taken super seriously on their ship, but who want desperately to be taken that seriously. I think that's really going to resonate with me, and I can't wait to watch their journeys, learn how they deal with disappointment, how they deal with uncertainty, how they deal with the balance between growing disillusionment with their jobs and the novelty of exploring the unknown. Um, that's something that I'm also very much looking forward to. Okay, let's turn to our final new Star Trek show that we're going to discuss today, which is Star Trek Prodigy. Now, well, yeah, Can I just point out yes. the fact that we can talk about three new shows in one podcast is amazing. <laughs> yes, what times we live in. Okay, while Star Trek Lower Decks will be very much geared towards adults, there will be a kids animated show coming. It's called Star Trek Prodigy. And the recent Comic-Con at home Star Trek Universe panel uh, revealed the name of the show. Uh, and we now have that to latch on to and start speculating about what it might be about. Peter, you have a young child uh, who is presumably going to grow up with a healthy dose of Star Trek in your household. What do you hope Star Trek Prodigy offers him? I hope it offers them the same thing that Avatar The Last Airbender offers them. So, I mean, I, I, I can see some people seeing, oh, it's Nickelodeon and it's for teens. And it's like, oh my God, this, let's just stay away from this and just watch the adult things. Um, I will say there's a whole lot you can do with a Nickelodeon uh, animated series that uh, even though it's, it says geared towards teens and young adults, uh, it could be absolutely amazing. Um, so what I want Star Trek Prodigy to do is essentially look at very real struggles that these uh, renegade teens, right, as, as it says in the, in the show description, deal with their lives and their journey and their struggles on board this derelict ship. 
of course, I want to know all the details. What time period? Uh, what are their histories? How did they come to find this ship? What do they do once they are uh, on the ship? Is it a redemption story? Uh, is, it, is it more than just exploration? I think I want this show to tell uh, my, my kid that uh, there's a world of possibilities out there and there's a lot you can do with cooperation, with having, I don't know, a group of friends and, and just support and just, I don't know, just, I think there's a lot of things that this, this show can do, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we don't know much about it right now. So, <laughs> Interesting that you bring in Avatar The Last Airbender. Thanks to quarantine, I am finally watching that series for the first time and yes! absolutely loving it. The first time, Mike. The very really? first time. Yeah, wow. I, was, I did not even know that it existed when I was a kid. Um, and I first heard about it when I was in college. But by that time, I was just like, uh, a kid's show, really? Now I've sat down and I fully understand everything. <laughs> um, so Elise, you may not have a young child at home, but let's say you were in charge of running this new show. What would you make it about? Would you make it Avatar, The Last Airbender in space, or would you go in a different direction? I think, for one, I wouldn't have named it Prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that name gives me a little bit of uncomfortable feeling about it, because I feel like one of the things that was really a struggle for me as somebody who wanted to go into science was sort of this feeling that the scientists were the prodigies and honestly like the Spock model of a scientist was kind of damaging and getting over this idea that you have to be some kind of like strange exceptional person to just you know go into the office and put in a good eight hours and do something interesting that was sort of tough and so I I kind of worry that it's going to be about some like super special amazing singular human that has all these amazing skills that makes the show possible I mean I guess Avatar sort of had this in Aang but he was like he had so many layers to him that made it, um, and, and his existence was sort of embedded in the necessary rules for the universe that they had built. So it, it wasn't like he was, like people who do this job are like special. It's like, no, there's one person who's like this. It's part of the physics of the world. Like, I, I guess I'm a little bit put off by the title just because I sort of don't want to see genius worship. And um, Star Trek does that a little bit <laughs> from time to time. Um, but I, I think to go back to Peter's point about like what it can offer is this optimism. I think that it's so easy to be pessimistic and it's really popular to be pessimistic. Like even when I was in high school, middle school even, it's really, really easy to just be negative. And if the show can make it cool to be an optimist and to like be kind to yourself and prioritize your happiness and believe in a better future or at least, you know, not freak out if things don't go your way. I think those would be the lessons that I wish I had learned from a, from a show rather than like how to dream of being great, like how to be happy with who you are would be more the lesson that I would hope it would teach. And Star Trek has so much diversity to offer in terms of people and talents and um, goals. Like it's a whole universe of possibilities that, I mean, we don't even have. So I hope it leans into that a little bit and makes it a very sort of warm and fuzzy show. <laughs> that's, I guess that's the, the vibe I would want rather than a really like flashy, smart one, if that makes sense. Totally. Those are absolutely wonderful thoughts. You know, the lessons that we want to teach our kids, uh, we really need to think hard about in our shows. And, you know, that prioritizing of happiness and of friendship and bonding and things like that, 
is very important and might be lacking in in a lot of shows these days. Uh, I I can't really speak about the kids' shows because I don't watch a lot of them these days, but uh, I can imagine that they they might be lacking in that. Yeah, Avatar was so great because it did this greatness story and it had so many like talented special people in it, but it really was about like learning to value the human things in your life at its mm-hmm. core, mm-hmm. Um, which was super cool. So it had all the flashy fun things, but it. I mean, the story, the moments that are the best are like Zuko crying on Iroh's shoulder. You know, it's, it's not a, I don't know. <laughs> who, who do you think <laughs> loves, who do you think loves his team more? Jean-Luc Picard or Uncle Iroh? Oh my God. That's the crossover <laughs> I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> Tea time with Jean-Luc and Iroh. Oh my God. I want God. that to be the like data afterlife. It's just, you have tea with Iroh for the rest of eternity. Jasmine um, and Earl Grey forever. <laughs> what a yeah. great couple. Yeah. They would make a new tea. It'd be like jasmine tea with bergamot. It'd be like a um, dragon gray. Oh, yeah. dragon gray. <laughs> like the that. dragon of the dragon of the east, right? And then the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I think. Well, that actually raises dragon an of the west. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. That actually raises an interesting point because I think the one thing Avatar did so well was that they trusted their audience. They trusted their audience to understand uh, what characters go through. That. You know, usually in kids shows, they have self-contained episodes and then character do some wacky shenanigans and then they move on, right? But in Avatar, there was very much this full development of characters, of full character arcs throughout the, the three, three seasons. And they trusted their audience uh, to follow that and appreciate that. So I hope that Prodigy can do the same thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out. I'm not sure when the show will come out, but uh, hopefully your, your number one will be of an age that uh, he can appreciate it when it does. Okay. Uh, last, so exciting. <laughs> yeah, so, right. <laughs> Growing up with a Star Trek show geared towards you. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. So last but not least, uh, since this is a science and Star Trek podcast, I was just wondering if I could uh, get your personal scientific topics or themes or questions that are currently buzzing around and that you just can't stop thinking about in your highly inquisitive minds. Well, I haven't started grad school yet, so (laughs) get back to me. (laughs) (laughs) Taking a break, man. I'm working on my German flashcards and reading books and walking the dog. (laughs) Um, But I guess the the real question is, what am I going to be working on? So it's... um, Tanya works on a lot of, my future advisor works on a lot of different things. Um, She's involved in the Mars mission, but she also works on a lot of Earth history. And um, so one thing I've been trying to read up on a bit because it might be relevant for the topic is for my research is the clumped isotope record for dolomite, which is apparently a really tricky mineral to synthesize in lab. And so it's been difficult for people to calibrate these measurements that they use to tell what temperature rocks formed at in the distant past because if you can't grow it at the right temperature, you don't know exactly how hot it was. You don't have a good reference point for calibrating your geochemical measurements. So it's been something I've been reading up a little bit about, but honestly, you know, and this is something I think that maybe scientists don't say enough uh, on air or whatever, but like, I I don't know enough about it yet to have a real opinion. <laughs> so get back to me in, in two years and I'm sure I'll have something fun to say about dolomite in the clumped isotope record <laughs> yeah for now it's flashcards and dogs okay i'll return to you about clumped isotopes and dolomites in a, in a bit but uh, could you just break that down the the jargon for the the audience what is dolomite and what is it yeah so oh god i hope i don't screw up um i hope i don't it's screw all good up. this isn't your calls yet <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah 
so dolomite is is a carbonate mineral so it's sort of in the family of minerals that you'd be familiar with from like seashells uh it's made of similar building blocks but it's chemically different and it we see a lot of it in the old old earth record it's kind of unusual for modern rocks but we see a lot of it the further back you go and it ends up being really important if you're interested in the early earth and its climate record so like I said, it's kind of unique in that it's really difficult to synthesize at low temperatures in lab. And by low, I mean earth surface temperatures. You can heat it up to 300C and then it's really easy to make, but that's not useful if you're trying to calibrate a geochemical thermometer that reads out temperatures in the sort of 20C range, room temperature range. So the lab I'm joining has a way to make it at, at a controlled temperature that's low by taking advantage of some bacteria that encourage it to grow. and calibrating this measurement would perhaps make it easier to use a paleothermometer, a measurement that tells you what the temperature was a long time ago on this rock. Or it could tell us we can't we can't use it, which would also be important to know because sometimes people include it in their measurements when they do these analyses. Um, and the measurement that we were talking about, this clumped isotope measurement, you can measure the proportions of the heavy to light isotopes or sort of flavors that these elements come in and certain processes tend to cause there to be sort of grouped clumped changes or you'll see isotopic changes not in just one element but in groups of elements together so ions that tend to move together so you can get these sort of clumped effects and I don't know all the details this is something I'm really going to have to learn because I didn't take a lot of geochemistry while I was at Caltech um, which is funny because this was actually like really, really a big deal at Caltech and I didn't get it at all. Um, but you can, it's sort of a newer way to make isotopic measurements to tell what the temperature was in the past. So you can take a rock, sort of read out the various proportions of the different clumps of these heavy and light isotopes that tend to group together. And that tells you something about the equilibrium processes or the chemical processes that were happen, which are really affected by temperature. So they can be a really precise proxy for what the temperature was if you know a lot about the system. Very cool. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, trying to get to know Earth's climate history in this very particular and very clever way by using the different flavors of the different elements that sort of go together with one another. <laughs> yeah, I need to learn someone uh, else's cleverness <laughs> yeah. because it's, it's far too clever for me at the moment. I definitely <laughs> need to spend some time soaking in it, but that's what being a student's about, right? Right. And, uh, and, and I know you will succeed at that journey. Peter, what about you? Yeah, these days I'm still thinking about clouds on other planets. Um, one of the cool things that's come down in the last couple of years is that we're just getting more and more measurements of the atmospheric properties of uh, exoplanets. And we're starting to build this database, this compilation of, of certain properties, like how cloudy they are, for example. And we're seeing something like a trend in that uh, as a function of the temperatures of these worlds, as a function of gravity of these worlds. And where there's a trend, uh, you can start predicting global behaviors of atmospheric properties, which are fun. It's sort of like the unified theory of, of exoplanet atmospheres. And so that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. And uh, recently we published a paper looking at these trends in hot giant planets. It looked interesting, but now we're moving on to smaller, cooler worlds where you might have different kinds of clouds and we're starting to see trends there too. So we're gonna to try to explore that. Um, but also moving forward, we want to think about rocky planets, rocky exoplanets. 
And like I said, some of these are very strange and very new <laughs> and also worlds. Anyway, <laughs> so um, for example, uh, there are a lot of these rocky planets orbiting these uh, small red stars, M dwarfs, and they tend to be tidally locked and they might have tidal forces pushing and pulling on them that could cause, say, volcanic effects. And these would impact what their atmospheres are made of. These would impact whether they are habitable and so on and so forth. So I think going forward in the next couple of years, I really want to think about, is there a unified theory of rocky planets? Can we say there's a planet orbiting at this distance around this type of star and, and say, oh, then that atmosphere must be made up of something. Maybe they're all steam worlds. They're all Atmosphere is composed of water vapor because they're so hot. Maybe they're all CO2-dominated worlds like Venus and Mars are in our own solar system. Or maybe they have habitable atmospheres. Who knows? Uh, so this is something to look into. Unfortunately, rocky worlds are complicated because unlike giant worlds where we can sort of assume that their atmospheres are mostly hydrogen helium with trace amounts of other stuff, rocky planet atmospheres are affected by so many more things like volcanic outgassing of, of various gases, as well as loss of atmosphere to space. So I think it's going to be uh, uh, complicated, but it's also exciting going forward. Right. Yeah. Those rocky planets have that process of volcanism that uh, the more puffy gaseous ones just don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I like that. <laughs> you start to throw in life on, on, on the surface of rocky planets and then who knows what happens. <laughs> right. Biosphere mediated atmospheric composition. Yeah, that's what, what that? I, I love that's thinking about, but yeah. it's hard. It's a yeah, hard what problem. are you thinking about, Mike? Oh, goodness. That's a great question. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm trying not to get too mad about uh, this paper that I recently had rejected after 15 years of, uh, 15 years, 15, it feels like 15 years, but it was a 15-month review process, and uh, oh unfortunately, it was, uh, it was, Rejected. Um, there were five reviewers on this paper. Um, usually for scientific journals, there's at most three. Some use two. Some even use just one. But this one had a. This one had five. Um, and at the end, after this back and forth with the reviewers, the score was four to one. Where w there was one reviewer who still just would not accept this, and the other ones thought it's it fine to be published. You needed it unanimous in uh, astrobiology. Yeah, it's it's really it's really disappointing to me. Uh, but you know, I'll take I'll take what I can learn from this experience and uh, try to rewrite the paper in a way that hopefully when I submit it to the next journal, uh, it will not receive such staunch opposition. So that's what's currently on my mind. Uh, on that uh, slightly confusing and oddly emotional note, I want to thank both of you uh, again for being wonderful friends and wonderful scientific colleagues and wonderful podcast guests, um, Elise and Peter, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's always wonderful to catch up with you. I'm glad that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy and enjoy the new Star Trek series. Live long and prosper. Yeah, you too, Mike. Peace <laughs> out, long life. Don't you worry about that paper. I've come to learn over the years that troublesome peer review is part and parcel of the scientific experience. I promise you, the day it's published, I'll be sharing the details right here on Strange New Worlds. Not just the details about the scientific concept, but also 
the human side of the journey, which I'm sure will be just as fun and juicy to discuss. For now, on behalf of my distinguished guests, Elise Cutts and Peter Gao, I wish you all the best as we continue moving forward into this brand new era of Star Trek and a brand new era of Strange New Worlds, this triple-digit regime. Remember, a Q&A with the questions that you, the audience, submitted to me will feature on episode 101. Until then, well, you know, see you out there. I didn't come across as too negative about Prodigy. So it's no, just... I think no. those were absolutely wonderful thoughts and, you know, probably something that not a lot of non-scientists think about. So it's it's great to have yeah. that in there as a perspective. But yeah. the name did, I just imagined young Sheldon. Oh, God. <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> like, no. Or like Wesley the show. Wesley the show. <laughs> I don't want Wesley the show. <laughs>